Welcome to McKinsey Talks Talent, featuring McKinsey leaders and talent experts Brian Hancock and Bill Shanninger. I'm Lucia Rahili. The good news about the youngsters verbalizing everything is you don't need an early warning radar system. They're literally telling you. Whereas the Gen Xers, I think it's actually a higher bar for leaders that you actually have to keep tabs on them because they might just be quietly looking and lining up something else elsewhere and you'd never know because they're just not as overt in revealing when, they, when they're a risk. That's Bill talking about how different generations express or don't express their unhappiness at work. He joins Brian and me to discuss what multi-generations have in common in the workplace and the nuances that differentiate them. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's great to be back. Great to see you. So let's start with what this new research tells us about the reality of age-based differences at work. We've all had friends marveling at the idiosyncratic behavior of various generations, but are we really that different? Bill? Well, you know, the headline is they are remarkably similar. So we took a stance and said, okay, we'll look at it from generations, but we're actually going to look at age. And then we added in things like life context. You know, did you have a child? Did you have a parent you were caring for? Did you have a partner, et cetera? So while we have interesting nuances that showed up, the general answer, not much difference at all. And Bill, just before we get too far, this research applies to traditional workers only, or you're incorporating gig and other kinds of employees? We had traditional and non-traditional in there. So it is surprising that members of various generations have more in common than not, in particular, since we spend so much time remarking on the differences among the generations. I mean, at some level, people are people. They want to have meaningful work. They want to have real connections with their coworkers, with their managers, with a broader purpose of what they're doing, and they want to be fairly compensated for the work that they do put in. And so I think that's what's most important for everyone. Now, there can be a few nuances. If you're earlier in your career, you may be willing to take a job that has more learning opportunity versus near-term compensation. And if you're a retiree, you may be more willing to have a job where it's all about the connection. It's all about who you see every day because we know that that human connectivity is something that you know some people are looking for, particularly much later in their career, and work can be an outlet for that. We're now routinely seeing four and sometimes five different generations together at work as older generations become progressively healthier and engaged in their working lives. In the interest of dispelling some of these stereotypes, let's walk through the myths you've identified in the research about age-based preferences, and we'll take one for each of the four most prevalent generations in the workforce, starting with Z, Gen Z. So we hear so much about Gen Z's financial woes vis-a-vis diminished economic mobility and the likelihood that Gen Z won't be able to afford the same kind of lifestyle that was readily achievable in the past. Is it true, Brian and Bill, that Gen Z is motivated primarily by money? Not true. Doesn't mean that money doesn't matter. There's a theme for all of the Gen Z myths, which is you can pick almost anything they talk about and say, oh, it matters more to them. What's really different there is that they're talking about it and as openly and transparently as they are. And that tends to make it seem like it's more important. I mean, it's not like Gen Xers don't think about money. Of course they do, particularly as they get closer to retirement. But we were raised in an era, in air quotes, if you will, where you didn't talk about comp. The thing about Gen Z that's really, really, really different is it's so transparent You know, my son, who's 23, is going into the workforce in the last year. Every offer that every one of the kids in his cohort had 
shared with everyone. I mean, complete market transparency mm -hmm. about what the offers are from what firms and what they were getting. And so I think the difference there is underlying Gen Z is a willingness because they were raised this way as kids to share every emotion, every thought, and every need and assume that it's validated. So if comp matters to you and you talk about it, the other people might think, well, that's all that really matters to them. But we know from asking them that's not the case. They are interested in development. They're very concerned about an environment that's inclusive and makes them feel like they can be successful. They happen to talk about comp because it doesn't strike them as being a faux pas. And there was a great survey that came out looking at new college graduates and how many wanted to work fully remotely. Almost none. And the reason was they want the in-person apprenticeship. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's take a common myth about millennials. We've often heard that millennials put the highest premium on work-life balance. True or false? What did the research say? We did in our research that we released last year look at a few of the non-traditional cohorts. And one of those cohorts was the caregiver cohort. And whether it's caregiving for children or for parents or for others, uh, we did find that that segment really did prioritize you know, additional workplace flexibilities. It's worth pointing out flexibility is a little different in that many people, when I think they hear it, they think location but in the fullest sense, it's what work you're doing, how you're doing it, where you're doing it, and when it's being done. So, okay, well, how does the work get done? Is there a standard practice and there could still be something artisanal about it? Does it have to be done in the office? Does it have to be done with others or can I do it myself? And the when part, very interesting. For people who are trying to really make life and work work together, the nonlinear workday is way better. They can get up early and get going. Then they can get up with the kids, get the kids some breakfast, get them off to school come back to have some core hours. Maybe the kids come home from school. There's some parenting that's there, getting them off the practice, homework or whatever, and you come back on at night and finish up. That flexibility is in like the fullest sense. So millennials are the generation where caregiving would seem most likely to start. Do you see a difference between generations? It matters a great deal. In fact, X still has a pretty interesting thing where in many cases their parents are unprepared for retirement or the parents have some level of a long-term care need or a health care need while they still have kids who need care. You know, in my case, Anna's 14, Will's 23, my mom is 70, and then I have older relatives who are like, you know, in that age group that we all are going to need looking after. I need both to continue to earn, so comp would matter for me, but also the flexibility to be present for either mom or 14-year-old daughter. I think that's increasingly common among Xers. I think one of the things that is interesting, whether it's with Gen X or with the millennials or even the Gen Zs, is how to think of dual income couples and how they're navigating the workplace. Our women in the workplace research would show that women are still taking a disproportionate amount of the work that needs to get done outside of the office, the work in the home, the caregiving responsibilities. But we are seeing that men across these generations, too, are looking for flexibility, are thinking more about, hey, how is it that I can be a dad at work? I mean, there are organizations that have dads at work in the way they have moms at work. And so while women still disproportionately are carrying the load across these generations where we're taking care of parents while taking care of our children, we are seeing, I think, a little bit of a shift. And that changes the dialogue from, hey, moms need to take extra time off to, hey, we all need more flexibility in how we can adjust our schedules to meet the needs. It doesn't mean that we want to do less work. It means that we want to do work in a way that is respectful of our partner and at the same time takes care of the needs we have both in the office and on the home front. So let's get back to the myths about various generations. There is a myth that would 
theoretically describe the demographic of at least one, possibly two of the people in this room, and that is Gen X. Gen X employees are most motivated by job security. Presumably, that's a result of having been disgorged into the workplace during the hideous recession of the 90s. But what does the survey say? The research says that Gen X are no more worried about job security than any other generation. Everybody has a reason for needing a job. Gen X likely has had it a bit more attenuated for them. If you look at their arc, so I'm 53. For us, we would have been the first generation to see our parents really lose the idea of cradle-to-grave employment, you know, through the late 70s and then mid-80s firings and downsizings of classic American institutions. You know, where I live in Bethlehem, Bethlehem Steel, shrinking and going away, Mack trucks moving away. So for this age group, First, you'll have had cradle to grave completely taken out of your mindset. Then they will have gone through the 90s and the early noughts and all that meant to the reshaping of the economy and the over-indexing towards dot-com. And now coming through and going, well, hold on a minute. Now the boomers, many of them not prepared for retirement, intergenerational wealth normally goes downwards, but I'm actually going to have to kick cash into my parents to look after them. And oh, by the way, my kids may have delayed getting married and setting up their own family and maybe wanting to live with me. So there's an interesting pinch point for Gen X in particular. They have a real need to want to continue working from an economic standpoint. But in an environment where they can go other places and still work, what really matters is the work has to matter to them for them to continue doing it. They, by and large, are still reasonably attractive in the workplace. Wasn't there a point about... Gen X actually being likelier to leave their jobs if work wasn't meaningful, that seems totally counterintuitive to me if they had dual caregiving responsibilities. Yeah, the dual the dual was interesting just because it raised the stakes. Well, I think what was surprising, and I think it's buoyed by the fact that they, they're not finding a particularly hard time finding another role. Mm-hmm. And, and I think for, by and large, the Gen X generation, the individuals in Gen X know who they are. They've had enough work experience. And so I think what we're seeing Gen Xers say is, look, I know who I am. I know what I want to do. And even if it is a little bit risky, I'm confident in the current environment, I can find something that better lines up with who I am and what I want to be. The good news about the youngsters verbalizing everything is you don't need an early warning radar system. They're literally telling you. Whereas the Gen Xers, I think it's actually a higher bar for leaders that you actually have to keep tabs on them because they might just be quietly looking and lining up something else elsewhere and you'd never know because they're just not as overt in revealing when when they're a risk. So, Bill, you just mentioned not talking about comp, as we talked about earlier, as being a, a characteristic of X and boomers. The myth that we talk about in the research on boomers is that... Um, boomers put a high value on pay, on benefits, on opportunities for advancement, these kind of transactional features of work. What did the research say on that? So for many boomers, it's, even if you don't need the comp, comp as a marker of your perceived worth is still a thing, right? It's a way of keeping score. But for many boomers, it is about affinity, affiliation, being respected, and a good portion of their social life is there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One of the factors that I thought was interesting that you looked at was a safe workplace environment. What do we mean there? Isn't a safe workplace environment table stakes for everyone? Why was that sort of variably important to different generations? I do think safety means something really different. Safety is that I'm coming home from work. Big deal. 
Safety as in I can reasonably count I'm going to continue to have a job and provide for the people I love. Then there's safety in the more nuanced way of I feel safe being who I am at work. So much more around the inclusive environment, much more around the accepting environment. There is the generational difference of Z will wear it on their sleeve loud and proud and let you know. And it feels it's their right to articulate, hey, this is who I am. And I do think that that creates a very different need for safety, likely around the idea of emotional safety, mm-hmm. right, or psychological safety. But this idea that you can be who you are and not feel like you're being bullied or under threat or under attack. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It does make sense. What are some ways that managers can foster intergenerational connections mm-hmm. in a team setting in order to help colleagues overcome preconceived notions about the working habits of folks in other generations. Send a memo to the really old people. Talk to the people <laughs> your age and text the youngsters. <laughs> well, I mean, right. I, the communication thing is the big example that everyone talks about, right? Like that, you know, well, the individuality Gen X calls on the phone, millennials yes. email, yeah. and. Gen Z instant messages. I do think the the individuality part is a pretty big deal. Mm -hmm. And as a leader, knowing in a mixed team environment, right, where each, and this could be same age or not, but different communication styles and needs, you know, what's your work language or whatever. I think you have to know enough to have a chance of doing it, which means you have to actually talk to them. Brian used to say all the time, like, you know how they're doing by actually checking in. I mean, one thing that cuts across this that I think is interesting is as a country and as as a workforce, we have gotten more diverse generation by generation. And we really have to think about, you know, how are we making these more diverse new employees feel included in the environment? And some of that may be some of the great communication things that work for everybody. Leaders should think about, you know, in particular, their younger generation strategy as an inclusion strategy of, hey, what do I need to do to make them feel included? And for the older generations, hey, providing a little bit of this is what allyship looks like. And this isn't, you know, a crazy ask or crazy set of asks, but here's how you can show up and support. And I think navigating some of those may be something that is maybe not immediately top of mind to everybody, but I think should be as we think about managing across uh, different generations. What about the notion of two-way apprenticeship in building bridges among folks who might initially feel more different than similar to their colleagues? What I have found in the two-way apprenticeship, which is interesting, is I think the most senior person has to start and has to create an environment of trust and has to really show that they've invested in the other person for a two-way apprenticeship to work. Because when you've established that relationship, that allows somebody to say, hey, that didn't land the way you thought it landed because of X, Y, and Z. I think the one thing that everybody would be well-served to do is just go back to one of the most simple coaching tools on earth, which is the five whys. Why did you do that? Well, then why? Why underneath that? And if you get through the five whys, you get to, hey, actually, I had to leave that meeting because my dad's sick. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But 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 I, I think that seasoned coaches and people later in their career get it. Let's upskill everybody in some of the core aspects of coaching, some of the core aspects of asking why, of being curious, so that we can get more from it. Say a little bit more about what five why is. So the five whys is you do the why five times. So 
Bill, I saw that you opened the meeting in this way. Well, Bill, why did you do that? I did that because I thought it was going to be a good, you know, setting of the tone and expectation. Well, why did you think that was going to be a good setting of the tone? Because I thought that the client's underlying thinking was it. Well, why did you think the client's underlying thinking was that? Because I've seen that happen at four other clients. Why do you think this client is like that client? Oh, oh, yeah, this client isn't like that client. Okay, that's really interesting. Thank you for, like, you self-discover when you get underneath. Or, Brian, I've noticed that you consistently leave the team room early. Why, why do you leave the team room early? Because I have another well, why do you have another appointment that's, uh, and, you know, and then it gets underneath, you know, kind of what the real reason is. Any thoughts on ways managers might design rituals or relationship building that might help bring members of intergenerational cohorts together? Invite them to your house. I've been to Bill's house many times. I've never seen that go wrong. I mean, feels like it, there are so many ways that could go wrong. No, normally you would, it goes, you would think, you would think, but it you really would, goes you well. You would think there would be infinite reasons mm-hmm. why that could possibly go wrong. But I find that any time that you want to make a deeper connection with any group of folks, if you're able to do it at their house, if you're able to do it somewhere where it connects a little bit with the personal, it just takes off the who should we be, what should we be saying, how should we be showing up. And you're just Bill and Brian hanging out. Humanizing is a great way to close power distance if there is power distance. You know, it's wonderful. It's disarming. Um, There's nothing like having your partner or your spouse or your kids come in and, like, completely take away any veil, any veil of authority. You're like, no, in this house, actually, I'm the gopher. Okay. I thought there was an interesting point in this research on tailoring to individuals that had to do with the conversation between managers and reports. It talked about anchoring conversations on constraints that members of different generations might be navigating and trying to help them understand how to enable performance within those constraints. What are your thoughts on that? I often find the practical way of entering that conversation isn't to say, tell me what your constraints are. Let's get them down. Let, let me let me problem solve for you. Like, I can find you a nanny. Like, let me, let me work on it. I find those go less well. I mean, I like asking the question, what's your ideal life five years from now? What, what do you want to be doing at work? What do you want to be doing outside? What's kind of what are the rhythms of your life? What are you excited about? What's, what's going to energize you? And you can tell in that one, hey, what I really want to be doing is, you know, talking to a dad whose kids are going to be, you know, 10 and 12 and now just old enough to put on a backpack and do a long hike. And, you know, and you're like, that's cool. What's going to be important to you in getting there? And hey, how about work? What do you want to be doing on the work side? Hey, I want to be doing stuff I'm really passionate about. I don't care as much about X or Y or Z. It's like, I've entered the conversation, where do you want to be in five years? Also works just as well with uh, somebody who's a boomer, just as well as somebody's yeah. Gen X. Mm-hmm. Like the helping think through not what do you want to be in six months, but the longer term helps you then collectively say, well, if that's where you want to go, let's figure out the best way that we can contribute to that. We're, we can't architect what your entire life is going to be in five years, but hey, for the part that we're in, hey, let's, let's think through what it might be together. And, and I find that to be helpful. I mean, for me, when I would just moved home from London and I was having a hard time with Fridays, like before you knew it was like six or seven o'clock at night and you were done. And I remember once saying, actually, I'd like to be done by three o'clock. Like, well, what's so special about three o'clock? I'm like, well, three o'clock is when my kid gets home from school. 
I'm like, well, I think one day a week of having dinner with his dad should be okay. And I, I became like fixated on regaining agency around that. And I wonder if for many leaders, seeing how you can be the enabler of the people you work with, feeling like they have agency in things that matter to them in their own personal life is just such a wonderful unlock to a whole bunch of other things or what's coming up. You know, and that that Friday, by the way, became ritualistic in a way that it made it perfectly okay for Monday through Thursday going as late as it needed to go. It reminds me of a concept that I find very helpful across generations, which is when we're starting to work together, just introducing the idea of costly and cost less time. So for Bill, doing something from three to four on a Friday afternoon, incredibly costly because it's cutting in the ability to spend that quality time. But if Bill's sitting outside Sunday school, waiting for Sunday school to end for an hour on Sunday, that's cost less time. And all it is, is Sunday school. I'm just being productive because this is my costless time. And I'm making back those two hours that I took on Friday night. That was incredibly hard for me to give up. The nice thing is universally, the slot may vary by age and by life context. But universally, people like being asked what that no-fly zone is, what the really costly time is. I mean, that ought to be like a one-on-one. Thanks, guys. It was a great discussion. Oh, thank you, Lucia. It's great. Great so to be good here. good to see you. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Lucia Rahilly with Brian Hancock and Bill Shanninger. Subscribe to McKinsey Talks Talent wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have questions for Brian and Bill, write to us at McKinseyTalksTalent at McKinsey.com. We'd love to hear from you, and we may answer your question on the show. Be well. Be well.